Hello and welcome to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk tactics and break down all of the games. I am Patrick Duffy, lifelong Arsenal supporter, joined as always by coach Rodrigo Plaza. Listener, this week we are going to go through the highlights of nine of the games from Premier League Match Week 10, and then we will go into our game of the week, do a deeper dive on that one particular match, and wrap up with our predictions. Kind of a weird weekend coming out of Thanksgiving. Rodrigo, how are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. I uh, I felt I definitely felt a little frustrated by some of the games and the outcomes this weekend. Um, and I I didn't realize until we got set up that I'm still carrying that with me. So again, this might be another therapy session for me. Get some of this off of my chest. So uh, hot takes hopefully will be coming shortly your way. Love it. Well. In our telehealth therapy session, it's great because we're both patients and our teams are not the therapists that we need. It's just pure sadness. It's just pure pain. Arsenal Football Club continues to destroy me every single weekend. Uh, But the sun continues to rise in the east. Things move on. This is the way that it is. I think, Rodrigo, let's hop right into the highlights of our games this week. Please. I'm going to kick it to you to talk... Burnley, Manchester City. Yeah, first game. Uh, talk about broken dreams. Manchester City, five. Burnley, zero. Um, first, we should be fair to our listener, who's probably been faithfully seeing our predictions and putting down significant amounts of money and or pride on the outcome of these games. Unfortunately, Duffy steered you wrong this, this game. He thought this would be the upset of the week. It, if you can't tell, was not. Um, Manchester City absolutely destroyed Burnley. <laughs> Just absolutely decimated them. It's the simplest way to put it. Uh, I'm not really going to go through the goals. Riyad Mahrez comes out with a hat trick. And then Fran Torres and uh, uh, Gabriel Jesus both scored a goal each. Uh, or sorry, I believe Gabriel Jesus scored a goal that was called back by VAR. Um, and Benjamin Mendy is actually the actual fifth scorer. So a lot of goals. Um, honestly, it was just... Th- the way this game went down was... Uh, City went down the field, set up like they usually do, but Burnley's defense was not good enough to stop them from playing the way they wanted to. Um, And it proved, in a way, to me, that exactly what I've been saying this whole time is that Manchester City's approach to attacking works very well if the other team is worse than you on an individual talent level. If they cannot, if they can't stand match, you know, one to one with you, then it's a successful strategy. If their team is decent or their structure is decent and they don't allow you to do what you want to do because they're defensively, you know, put together, then it's not much of anything. Um, so although this feels like maybe some kind of glint, some some shimmer of Manchester City getting back on the horse, let me tell you, they haven't. This is the exact same Man City you're going to see week in, week out, struggling against teams that have any semblance of how to defend and then blowing out teams that are pretty bad. Um, Burnley struggled on offense as well. Um, it was shambles. Please, like, sorry, thank you, next. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we can move right on. I, I don't. I I, I want to move on. Please. I also do need to apologize, listener. I'm sorry. I led you astray. I was blinded <laughs> by the shine off of uh, beautiful. Uh, what's his name? The manager over at uh, Oh Burnley, Sean Dyche. I was, I was blinded Deitch. by the shine off of his dome, <laughs> and that led me astray. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Brighton one, Liverpool one is our next game. 
kind of some interesting facts going into this game. Um, Brighton has never taken a point off of Liverpool in any competition. Um, anytime that they've met them, they've lost every single time. So this is a big this is a big result for Brighton, even against an injured and beleaguered Liverpool team. Right off the gate, Liverpool looks really hot. Diego Jota is freed in the second minute, and he tries to get this pass off to Salah. It's intercepted. Salah then, in the third minute, almost scores on this amazing ball from Fabinho. All game, Fabinho is pinging these balls from the center over the top and, and finding the space. I thought Salah would put that away. And then Brighton is playing the counterattack, and is actually playing the counterattack throughout the first half really well. Um, Connolly had three or four chances that he should have scored. One in the ninth minute, uh, Mape finds him totally against the run of play, and he just misses completely wide. And then in the 19th minute, drama strikes uh, at the Amex Stadium. Nico Williams, a young Liverpool player who's in because of all the injuries, he fouls Connolly in the box. It's a, it's a very clear penalty. It's sent to VAR. Honestly, it didn't even need to be. Um, very clear. Malpace steps up to the spot and just completely misses the goal. It was one of the worst penalty kicks I've ever seen in my life. It's not like he slipped. He hits it so cleanly wide right of a goal. I like laughed out loud watching that. I hate Malpay because he's so disrespectful to Arsenal in that game last season. So it does me a lot of joy to watch him screw this up. Um, and then Salah is found on the counterattack in the 34th minute. Against the run of play, it's an amazing run from Salah. The ball in from Firmino from his own half. Salah breaks lines, get through, gets through two defenders and scores. VAR comes in. It's disallowed. Salah's toes were off offsides. Should have clipped his toenails before this game. Would have been onside. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and it keeps going. It keeps going, listener. Game game kind of winds in the half, and you think like both of these sides are trying to play on the break, and and Liverpool is just going to be better at doing that because of the quality they have up front. In the 60th minute, Salah finds Diego Jota, who runs left to right um, on the top of the box, and Jota just slots it home. He didn't really hit the ball very cleanly. It wasn't a great strike, but it goes in. It's a goal. Liverpool's up 1-0. It feels like Liverpool is going to walk away with all three points. And then Mane scores a few minutes later, but again is found to be offsides, and it's disallowed again. And then again, drama strikes, VAR comes into play. Danny Welbeck is fouled in the 90th minute in the box uh, by Andy Robertson. It's initially not called a penalty. The play goes on. The announcers completely don't even notice that it happens. It gets sent up to VAR, and it gets ruled a penalty. Honestly, I think it is a penalty. Robertson definitely connects with his foot before he connects with the ball. He goes down. It's one of those penalties that we've talked about, listener, where it's like, what advantage is the, the player going to have here if like it doesn't happen? I, I think it's soft. I do think it's a penalty. Pascal Gross steps up, and he smashes it home right down the middle to put Brighton equal 1-1 and give Brighton their first point against Liverpool. A, a couple little things about this game. Liverpool had an expected goal of 0.28. I wonder if their expected goals were like completely knocked down because of offsides. I don't know the, how that calculation works oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But that's shockingly low. And now Sadio Mane, I believe, has gone six games in a row 
without a goal. So a little bit of a drought for him, something to maybe be a little bit concerned about if you're Liverpool. And this is kind of what happens when you have a lot of injuries. You drop points. My hot take that's probably not that hot is that both of those PK calls were, like, wrong. The first one, actually, I actually feel the most strongly about. And the reason why I feel this way is because if you watch that play unfold, when uh, I believe, who's, who's dribbling? Is that Mape dribbling into the box there? Ye- Mape uh, hands it off no. to Connolly, yeah. Connolly. Yeah. So Ken- Connolly's running into the box. When he stretches the ball forward, to my mind, that's no longer in his possession. And I think it's a 50-50 ball. If it's, in, if it's a 50-50 ball, and that's how it looks to me, both players are trying to make a play on the ball, trying to put their bodies in front of the other player. And in fact, Nico Williams or Nico Williams, he's the one in front. This should be a foul on Aaron Connolly for taking him down. He was about to win a 50-50 ball. Now, it's a little tough because the way that the ball is rotating, it's spin, it's spin. You notice that the ball is going forward and then kind of starts to drift left as if it was always in possession by Aaron Connolly. But I don't think that's the case. So I actually think that's the opposite. I think it should have been a foul the other way. Um, and then I, the other one, I, I, guess, I guess I see it as a technicality. But it's absolute BS to me. I, I don't I think that that contact is enough to commit a foul. For example, there are all kinds of moments in the game, think about set pieces especially, when contact is made, it's probably not really allowed. You know, I mean, or else I'll put it this way. Like, it's not really on the ball. It's not in a motion to make the ball. And we let that go. It's just, I mean, we understand that that's just, that's allowed contact. In this case, I think it's so minor that to me it doesn't rise to the level of, of worthy of a call there. So, I, like I said, now maybe not so hot. But both takes, I, I stand by. I agree with you in terms of like spirit of the game and what makes sense and what we would like to see fouls and penalties be. Nuance. But Rodrigo, it's no nuance November. It's all down <laughs> to the technicality here. And I think letter of the law, like those, those are those are I penalties. hate laws. So anyways, <laughs> well, moving on to our next game, Crystal Palace, Newcastle. Uh, Crystal Palace 0, Newcastle 2. This was actually uh, a kind of an exciting game. It's an exciting game in that way when you find two teams that are equally matched, play each other. It can be exciting. That's what made this game exciting. Um, so there's no Zaha, first of all, because uh, COVID. Uh, and that you know that's going to have an effect on Crystal Palace's uh, attack. Callum Wilson uh, is back, on the other hand, for Newcastle, which is exciting, coming back from injury. Um, Newcastle definitely starts off in this game on the aggressor, as the aggressor. Um, they have several crosses, drives into the box. They don't quite get a good finish on any of them. They're, like, missing over, missing wide, um, but definitely come out looking strong, which is exciting because, you know, Crystal Palace is not their sharpest, and Newcastle's been then struggling. Crystal Palace starts to pick it up a little bit more in the second half. They are still kind of lacking the quality to score, um, but you know it's definitely evening out a bit. Uh, and then as it progresses, uh, the like it gets pretty late in the game, but still 0-0. Benteke has been subbed into the game, and he has this header in the 79th minute that was fantastic. It was this kind of early cross sent in. Um, not sent with a lot of arc. Stays just above head level almost the whole way to him. And he puts a header straight down to the corner. And it, honestly, it's a great reaction save um, by Carl Darlow, who's able to keep it clear. But it, it, that, that might have been goal number one. And it would have been a beauty. Um, and then, very late in the game, Newcastle finds their way to score. 88th minute, Callum Wilson scores. It's an assist from Joel Linton. Um, so there's a throw-in. It's actually kind of a cool play. It's a throw-in on the right side, near half field to Joel Linton, who kind of bobbles it with his head over the other player. 
and then pings it to 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 um to Callum Wilson, who then kind of scoops it over the guy on him back to Joel Linton, and then Joel Linton passes a through ball. It's just a beautiful one-two combination, through ball into the box with Callum Wilson running in one v one with Guaita, but he ends up making him, uh, which just adds a nice little cherry on top to the whole combination. Um, and then two minutes later, Joel Linton gets his goal uh, with an assist from Callum Wilson. Uh, so Crystal Palace is kind of up and attacking, right? They just got scored on. They're looking for a late goal. And there's this bad pass they send across the 18. John Joe Shelby intercepts, plays to Wilson right away, who turns and just plays an early ball through Joel Linton. And then Joel Linton, honestly, works his way with like two defenders nearby into the box, cuts to his left, and then slams it home. But it gets deflected by a defender and goes the other direction. And the keeper's, you know... Obviously totally wrong caught, footed. Exactly. Caught totally off guard, uh, and they get his second goal. So not a beautiful shot uh, from Joel Linton, uh, but the, 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 the run, the, the, the creation of the whole opportunity was nice. So a little lucky, but still. Uh, and then they come away with the 2-0 win. Um, honestly, I was kind of stoked for Newcastle. I thought they deserved this W. And honestly, Crystal Palace also just – it makes me sad when they play – this kind of like I don't even know what you call it pseudo conservative style of play when they like don't have Zaha it's like they don't really know what to do so they just kind of like sit in the corner it, and like wait I, I just it bothers me it's interesting because it's pseudo conservative but they also possess the ball more in this game like yeah there 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 was so much cycling around in the back line and amongst like the back four or five players and I I, I had the same thought I was like what is going on here and I, part of me felt like. They're waiting for Wilfred Zaha to like appear and make a run down the left so they can set him free. And then they're like, oh, wait, he's not here. Like, we don't have a plan. It, it just felt to me like, and we've said this before, it doesn't really feel like Crystal Palace has a whole lot of plan no. when the break is not on for them. 100%. I thought Callum Wilson was great in this game. He's now on seven goals in nine matches for Newcastle. So important to this team. Joe Ellington was also excellent, as you mentioned, involved in both of the goals. And is a player who's been pretty controversial at Newcastle, previously booed several times by Newcastle supporters for his lack of goal scoring. So I was also gassed. I was like, I, I like this team. I think Callum Wilson, top three Wilson, maybe of all time. You got Woodrow, Owen, Callum. <laughs> Uh, Luke Wilson didn't make the cut. Sorry, Sorry. bud. Um, but yeah, I was also gassed about this one. Beautiful. Uh, and to our next game and Loki, I think one of the best games of the weekend, Everton leads Everton zero leads one. And I called kind of some, I called that one to be game of the week. You did. You did call this to be the game of the week. And I think you were a hundred percent right. Looking at the scoreline listener, you might not think it was, this electric but this game was really exciting and really um actually had some excellent goalkeeping which you wouldn't expect from Messier or Pickford but both of them were terrific throughout the whole game um Everton setting up in like a 3-4-3 and interestingly they're playing Awobi out on the left and Tom Davies out on the right and Davies had an excellent game he almost found Decore in the seventh minute of the game. Decore is making this run. Davies crosses in. Meslier makes an amazing reaction save. Um, Rafinha is getting his second lead start uh, ever, and he was awesome throughout this game. He has this great run in the 10th minute to find Jack Harrison, who just misses the net wide. 
Pickford has an amazing save on Bamford in the 21st minute. Bamford gets his ricochet ball, just smashes it in. James Rodriguez in this game had the nicest goal I think I've ever seen, and it ended up getting disallowed for being offsides. Rich Arlison finds him on this long ball, and he's on the end line and barely keeps the ball in, but he's like five feet to the right of the goal on the end line and still somehow manages, gets this one-two touch and smashed into the top net. I was like, my jaw hit the floor when I saw it. <laughs> of course it gets disallowed because you can't have nice things no in 2020. Nice things. No nice things. Um, I, I thought that Tom Davies played this game really well. He was finding a ton of space on the right. Awobi, I thought, looked like he was struggling on the left. It's just not his natural position. He's, he's a right-footed left winger. Like I don't really see that working out. The game gets kind of uh, crazy. Rich Arlison scores off a corner just before the half. Terrible defending from Leeds. Um, but Godfrey, the Everton defender, was called offsides for obstructing the keeper. So even though he didn't touch the ball, he was right in Messi's face in his offsides. I think that was a good call. Um, I think some Everton fans would feel hard-pressed by that, but I thought it was the right call. And then right before the whistle for halftime, Jack Harrison hits the post on the 45th in the 45th minute with the header. And I, I another goal that I thought was surely going to go in. I think at halftime, if you're Bielsa looking at this game, you have to feel like, what what the hell? My team is getting set up for like a gazillion chances in front of goal, and then they just cannot find the net. It's like taking weird deflections. Pickford's making these amazing foot saves. Like, all sorts of crazy things, or they just can't even find the target. So I think he had to be feeling pretty frustrated. Um, and then Bamford scores this goal in the second half. Again, it's just another disallowed goal. I think there were three disallowed goals in this game for offsides. But the game kind of closes out um, when Rafinha scores in the 79th minute, and it's an amazing strike from beyond the 18. Hey, that's the name of our hey. podcast. Shout out us. Hey. I think this is this to me felt like a like a really textbook Bielsa goal, and just so you could see some really brilliant tactics here, you can see Dallas the the Leeds left winger making this like sharp run down the left hand side, and Rafinha looks up twice to him, and kind of like dummies like he's gonna hit it that way. And Godfrey is the defender for Everton, and Godfrey kind of like falls back because he thinks the ball is going to get across to the left, so he steps off his man. But then Rafinha slots it home and puts it right through Godfrey's legs and scores the goal um, that the defender should should be there to stop. Like it's not Pickford's fault, um, but it feels like this is the kind of thing that Leeds does: is they get the ball and then they're making these like really terrifying runs on the wings, so the defenders are like. We kind of have to sell to this. And Rafinha, it's just, you know, galaxy brain type play. Um, Leeds definitely deserved the win. They had 3.1 expected goals. So it was an excellent performance from them. Tough for Everton. I thought Everton played well. Great match to rewatch for sure. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And I'm glad that the game was exciting. I, I, I could have seen it. I could have seen it being a little, you know, some team coming out flat, but I'm very glad to hear that it, it went it went the way we wished. Um, next game, West Brom 1, Sheffield United 0. I have, I have a spicy take about this game, specifically about the Blades, uh, but let's just, you know, hop into exactly how it went down. So first five minutes, Sheffield comes out mowing. They got 
multiple chances. McBurney has a flick on that's beautiful that Oliver Burke just like can't get it get it on on a swing. There's this uh, they they send this cross to to Fleck. It kind of goes beyond like where they wanted it to go, and it comes back to him, and he misses wide right. And then uh, Oliver Burke uh, has this nice run down on the left side. He cuts into the 18. He has this diagonal ball back to Baldock, who whiffs it. It's just, it's looking like Leeds is, I mean, sorry, Leeds. Sheffield is just, like, coming out swinging. So I was very exciting. Ten minutes pass. And in the 13th minute, there's a goal for West Brom. Very sad. Uh, so there's a corner from the right. It's, like, waist high in front of the six. And... Uh, it gets deflected and kind of cleared to the top of the 18. And then Gallagher, uh, uh, I think it's Connor Gallagher, he just, he smashes it bottom right. I mean, it, it was tough for the keeper. There was a lot of people in the box, very hard to see. It might take a slight deflection, but if it did, it was minor. And he just puts it down bottom right, and, and that's that's the goal. But it's the 13th minute, and like I said, Sheffield's been swinging. They continue to swing all freaking game, man. Their expected goals for this game are 3.37. And West Brom's is 1.72. So not terrible or anything, but they really came out swinging. Um, Now, a few other things that happened in this game, some highlights that if you want to go back and and check on, they're all just sadness because you know they're not going to go in. But if you want to go check them out anyways, in the 15th minute, Oliver Burke again has his header from the side that comes from across from the left sideline. It's amazing. Like this amazing save to keep it out. 62nd minute, Baldock skies an absolute sitter. There's like this beautiful buildup with Oliver Burke. He he like puts this really nice slide pass to Baldock, like wide open in the 18. And he just like completely lifts it over the goal. Um, and then in the 95th minute, like the last minute of the game, there's a cross in from Baldock that gets blocked, and then the shot over the shot goes over on the rebound it's just over and over again so if you didn't notice how many times i said the word oliver burke (laughs) that guy needs to start up top agreed he gotta keep starting for the blades uh number one number two i think the blades are back i know that the result doesn't say that they won this game i think the blades are back i think they got a little unlucky um but this game and i know it was against west brom and i know it's gonna be different this seemed like my old Blades coming back. So I have, I have confidence now. I have confidence now. Blades are back in this. Before all of this, I, I kept saying, they look like they're down now. I don't know what's wrong. they got to fix. they got to fix that. I think they've got some things figured out. Expect some heat from these Blades coming going forward. I don't think they're going to be glued to the bottom anymore. I'm saying that now before it becomes cool. Um, so that's all I got. I, a couple things to add to that. Um, I agree with you watching this game. I thought that Sheffield was really unlucky. They had 22 shots. They had six shots on target. It just felt like they could not get the ball into the net. Like it was just, it was just one of those games. Like the breaks weren't going their way. Unfortunate. My hot take is West Brom. I don't actually think is as bad as people think that they are. I thought they started the season pretty poorly, but actually I think that they've kind of settled in. And I think, the way that they're being managed and set up is really smart. And I think they're starting to find their rhythm as a team as well. Mm. Um, Sheffield, I think the word is it's the worst start in the premier league ever for a side now through 10 games, which is tough. <laughs> That's so. Tough. That being said, Sheffield has conceded less goals than Liverpool through 10 games. So, and I think actually their goals allowed is like 
pretty on pace for being above the average, like or right around the median. So um, I think they're defending well. I think their problems up front, personnel-wise, I think you're right. Oliver Burke, I think, could really change the shape of their attack. And yeah, I, I similarly feel weirdly optimistic about them moving forward. Good, Duffy. Good. That's what I like to hear. A team who I don't feel any optimism <laughs> about whatsoever, Arsenal Football Club 1, Wolverhampton Wanderers 2. Um, before we hop into the highlights for this game, it really started with one of the worst football injuries I've ever seen in my entire life. Raul Jimenez, an amazing player, and regardless if he's not an amazing player, it's a horrific thing. Um, a coming together of heads with David Luis, and he en- ended up having a fractured skull. Um, the word as of today is that he's been um, able to talk and move a little bit in the hospital. He had successful surgery, so the road to recovery is going to begin for him. It it was one of the most sickening things I've ever seen watching a game live. I've never seen an injury like that. It was really scary um, and. We're, you know, all hoping for quick recovery for Jimenez coming out of that. Um, one of those things that happens in this game that you just, yeah, you 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 really have to hold your breath and, and hope for the best. Um, but hopping into the, the results of the game, Wolves playing a 4-5-1 really looked to be kind of building from the back. Uh, that seemed like the style of attack that they were trying to run. Um, but then... In the midfield, Wolves is also really pushing this high press, especially with Triore, and their high press uh, really was preventing Arsenal from having any kind of transition whatsoever. And it could also be that Arsenal is just an awful team that was preventing them from having any transition. I've never seen such bad passing from this team as I did in the first 25 minutes. It was disgraceful. Between Chaka and Ceballos, they're just spraying balls like all over the place with like no regard towards any kind of tactics moving forward. Um, and Wolves make them pay. Triari breaks in. He beats Tierney on the right and hits it into Dodonker, who who gets a clean header on the ball but hits the bar. And then Neto is there to clean it up, and he scores for Wolves in the 28th minute. And I, 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 I was waiting for it. I was expecting it. It happens. But then Arsenal... Hits back basically right away. William gets a corner kick in, and and Gabriel, uh, our defender, our center back, and now our leading scorer in the Premier League with two goals. Joke. Uh, he hits a clean header, and it's a great header from him. I thought he was one of four players on the field who who put in a real shift in this he, game. He beats like three guys on that header too. He got like a guy He's, pulling his shirt off of him. <laughs> he gets ahead to that ball. He he's such a great pickup for Arsenal and and I, let's just like a really strong and confident center central defender. Um, but then Wolves before the break hit back. Potent scores in this. Uh, I'm sorry, this is just in the second half. Right after the break, Potent scores um, on a deflective ball off of a defender and and it, it also kind of comes off of Leno. The ball is kind of pinging around. I feel like Leno sort of got wrong footed because of the way that the ball deflected. Um, but that was kind of what it was. In the second half, um, Arsenal definitely, they have some chances in the second half. Uh, I, especially the last like 30 minutes, it's really just them crossing the ball in and no one being able to put a touch on it and put it in. 
The Wolves, after the 60th minute, have zero expected goals. So they do absolutely nothing going forward and just sit back and defend and defend pretty well. I can't even really say, though, that the Wolves defended really well because Arsenal just really was not putting any real, like, credible threat going forward. I am a huge Aubameyang fan. He's been one of my favorite players at Arsenal. It, it was a disgraceful performance from him. And Arsenal fans on Twitter were really going off on him. It just looked like he had zero care in the world about scoring. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. The yeah. fact that we have to play Tottenham on the weekend, I... Uh, that's going to be really rough, dude. That's going to be really <laughs> that's rough. That's going to be really rough. I, I know. I, I felt the same way about Aubameyang, especially. I... I've always kind of been a fan. I think he's a good player. He seems like a good guy. Um, but there were several chances in this game where it just didn't even seem like he was fully committed to the to the opportunity. Like, like there, especially the there's this there's that pass, like that like kind of just terrible pass that essentially goes straight to Bamiyang from the goalkeeper. Yeah, and he makes an makes a run into the box, has a defender on him, and decides to kind of like. He kind of holds up play, and then, and then takes this shot that was just—it was like a high, very high difficulty shot when he could have just tried to dribble this guy. He's like one one defender with space on the left, you know. Um, it was very strange. It was very strange. It just didn't look like that same kind of at least that kind of like killer instinct that at least pops into play when you have an opportunity. You know what I mean? Like you can walk around the whole game feeling like, oh, this isn't my game, but then you get that chance and it, it turns on. But it didn't even really seem to turn on, and that was that was definitely concerning for me. Um, I know people. I know people are going to make fun of me for saying this. What I'm used to with Arsenal is watching us lose games and be like, "Man, like we should have won that game. Like we missed chances. We like made some silly mistake. Mustafi did something ridiculous. Like I'm used to that. What I'm not used to is watching games and being like, "Yo, we suck." I think that Manchester United win fooled me into thinking that this Arsenal team was decent. No, this team sucks. Like. This is just a, a, a bad team. Ugh, I, I'm, I'm so disgusted. I'm sorry, listener. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think should maybe move on into talking about please, uh, please. The, the game that I picked to be the game of the week and certainly was not <laughs> Chelsea versus Tottenham. Yeah, Chelsea zero, Tottenham also zero. Uh, I was really hoping this would be game of the week too, um, even though it wasn't necessarily my pick. Uh, you took a, you took a bullet for me there by picking it first. I I felt like this game was essentially like a stalemate most of the game. Um, you know there were definitely some chances created by Tottenham on the counter, and chance and Chelsea had some chances from the crosses, but like neither was really able to execute very well in like the final moments. And the creation was also kind of somewhat sparse. Um, it didn't seem like we were. Like either team was like churning out opportunities. Um, I don't think. I think. I think. I think a few things. Um, one. All of that said, uh, the goalkeeper for Chelsea. What's his name? I'm trying to remember his name. Oh, uh, Mendy. Mendy. Edward, yeah, Edward Mendy. Mendy. He actually has some very nice saves in this game. There are a couple opportunities that could have been pretty. Could have been pretty dangerous. There was, in particular, like the first 15 minutes. There was this shot, shot from Serge Aurier. He. He has like this ball, I think, come over the top, and he kind of hits it one time, and it was a very, it was a nice save. So he has some nice saves to keep them alive. Um, both teams, I think, were looking to kind of play the counter, but in that way, they stalemated each other. Kind of, they didn't really, 
concede the space to the other to get those very often. Um, I think that Zeke just isn't really hitting his rhythm in this game. His passes weren't quite as pinpoint accurate as they have been in the, like in the previous match. Um, like, I, I, I think that a lot of this too has to do with the transition play. Um, I think that Tottenham did a better job of transitioning from defense to offense than Chelsea did. Chelsea, I think, tried to do that occasionally, or they tried to do that, but often just took a little too long in their buildup. Um, sometimes, you know, you can you could point a finger at a particular person and say like, well, Conte, you know, didn't make a direct enough pass or didn't get it off his feet fast enough. But I don't know that I can just blame any one player. I just think as a group, they weren't moving as quickly as they, as they maybe wanted to. And I think Tottenham did a little bit better in that regard. Um, one thing that I thought was good was that on the counter, I noticed that Thiago Silva and Kurt Zuma both tended to just drop a lot deeper rather than to try to take up that space in the middle. And I actually thought that was a very effective way to play defense for them right now. Um, so they, they kind of just conceded that space in front of them to make sure that the space behind was secure, which I think was really key because if you watch that Manchester United game, or sorry, uh, yeah, who, who did they just play? Was it Manchester United? Somebody who was dropping, it wasn't Manchester United, I can't remember, last week's game, but anyways, dropping in when when Kane drops in as like a false nine is a very, very dangerous thing to do um, because of the runs that can come in behind. And I think them laying off and just conceding that space was, was definitely the right move there. Um, you know, I think... All told, Chelsea definitely has more possession in this game. It's a stalemate, but I think Tottenham plays a little bit better. Um, I said earlier that whichever team had more possession would lose. Um, you know, this seems, like I said, like a stalemate. It seems fairly, fairly even. Uh, I wish, one thing I wish, I wish that they had subbed in Giroud earlier and left Ziyech, uh for more, so that they had more time on the field together. Because I think that Zeke maybe could have done a little bit more with a player that was going to be really, really solid in the air. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. I can understand. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, that that's my read on the game. Do you have any, any thoughts, Duffy? Yeah, it's funny. I Most of what you said I think I agree with. I think I actually disagree with you about who played the better game. Mm. I've been really critical of Fat Frank for his tactics throughout mm. this podcast and season. I actually thought his tactics were excellent in this game. It felt like um, he – he was looking for the counter and for the attack um, early, but it seemed like his players had the understanding that if it's not 100% on, don't go for it. Because if we do, then we're giving uh, mm. Tottenham a chance to counter back. So it felt like there were a lot of times where I'm like, oh, like make that last pass. But I'm like, oh, but if you do that and the pass is not on and Tottenham wins the ball, which you're really good at doing – then yeah, you're springing the counter the other way, and that and that could really cost you. And I think is kind of in my eyes, the game plan was like we're going to try to really seal it in the last 15 minutes and win one zero, like hold them back, defend well, not get too drawn into the game, and then look for like a a Giroud header to kind of close it out. And I also like Tottenham. You know, they had those chances in the beginning, like you talked about. They had zero shots on goal. They had an expected goal of zero for the entire second half. Mm-hmm. I think, like, that for for them, it felt like, you know, what do they try to do? They try to build through Harry Kane. 
And Chelsea, I thought, did a really good job negating Harry Kane in the middle of the field. Whether that's like putting a whole bunch of people on him quickly or fouling him, they fouled him a bunch. And I think it's kind of cynical, you can argue, to do that, but it was really effective. Yeah, I think I think that I don't think that either team played this game particularly poorly. I guess I think I about it in terms of my expectations of what Chelsea could have produced in this game was higher, and I don't think they met it. Tottenham for me played what I thought they well, played in a way that I thought they would play, and they had a few early chances that maybe they could have put away, but and they didn't have a lot of goal creation in for sure, for sure second half. I get that, but I also feel like that's not really they're not the kind of they had like under they had like like thirty nine percent possession of the ball. So for me, they were trying to poach a goal the whole time. Like it, it only took it would have taken one opportunity, you know, one very solid through ball, one mistake, and they would have been through. You know what I mean? So like for me, it's like that's not the strategy I like to play myself. But were they adhering to kind of the strat that they were doing? Yeah, they were. They were. They were doing exactly. You know what I mean? So it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to evaluate. I, I think in the end of the day, I still feel like I call me crazy. I think Chelsea has a higher ceiling. Uh, that they that they need to reach, and I was really hoping that they would like reach for that this game, and they and they didn't. I think I think that's mostly why I feel that way. But regardless, fair, it was, it was not match of the week. Let me tell you, it was pretty <laughs> it was pretty dry. I think for the most part, um, which is unfortunate, especially because a tie I feel like says a lot less about who's going to be defining at the top of the table. And I was kind of hoping that a win here at least would would put some more pressure. And give us some clarity as right. pundits, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to move on to our next game, Leicester 1, Fulham 2. An absolutely massive three points for Fulham. Um, starting off of this game, it seemed like Leicester was going to you know, be the better team, get the win. Tielemans hits the bar in the 16th minute, um, kind of on a rebound from a free kick. Uh, and then there's a rebound that comes out to a Leicester player, who also missed, but was also offside, so it would have been disallowed anyway. The It's pouring rain. I should have said this at the start, but it was just raining buckets in Leicester during this game, and I I think maybe that affected the play a little bit. Like It, it definitely seems like it kind of slowed things down. Fulham played really hard this whole game and spent the whole game just looking to counter and gave possession to Leicester. And I think you and I have talked about this before, but... A lot of teams in the Premier League, when they have more possession, they struggle. And Fulham seeded that. They didn't try to hold on to the ball. They just looked for the counter. And they played it really well. Lookman scores in the 30th minute um, to put Fulham up 1-0. He's on the break, and he's just wide open on the left-hand side of the field. Leicester totally caught off guard. Ungisa had kind of made this really nice run through the middle of the field. Leicester had been overcommitting numbers, only have two guys back, um, and Lookman is not getting marked at all on the left-hand side. And he he scores a really nice goal to put uh, Fulham up 1-0, and then celebrates by taking out the jersey of uh, Senegalese Fulham player Papa Diop, who just passed away. I believe he was in his early 40s. So uh, a nice touching tribute to another Fulham player, I'm sure Fulham fans were so excited to see that from their new man. Um, and then De Cordova Reed wins what can only be described as a dodgy penalty, I would say. I think we talked about the Nico Williams one, and I, I thought your description of like why the spirit of the game, that shouldn't really be a penalty. This is basically the exact same thing, I think maybe even to a higher degree. 
um, the lesser defender, Fuchs, kind of cuts across him. The ball, like, like De Cordova Reed had already touched the ball going forward, and Fuchs, like, it's just kind of a coming together, like shoulder to shoulder almost. Um, and I thought Fuchs might have even had a step on him, but it's called a penalty. And Fulham score a penalty. The Their snake-bitten curse is broken. Cavaliero steps up to the spot and just hammers it home. And then in the second half, Lester possess more of the ball, are looking to create with James Madison. Madison distributing pretty well throughout this game. Harvey Barnes really had a rough game, both in terms of like the chances that he was creating for other people and the chances that he was taking. He just looked like he was off a step kind of throughout the whole thing. But then in the 85th minute, there's a deflection in the box, and Jamie Vardy is kind of the, the, the guy right under the ball, and he heads it perfectly to Barnes, who smashes it in. 2-1, game on. You feel like maybe Lester can steal a point here. Um, but Fulham is able to hold on. I, I, I'm really growing to like this Fulham team. I don't think there's like any people on this team who are going to get picked up by any big club next year if Fulham gets relegated. This is a team of like, you know, very low level talent. But I think Scott Parker is doing a really, really good job in getting them just to like play really hard, play really hard for each other, play really hard for the badge. There's not a whole lot of skill. We're gonna just going to counter and just like, you know, go hard. And I, I, I don't know. There's something like to me that's very lovable about that i think their one two touch play was just kind of fantastic like a, i mean Great. i know that they were ahead in the second half and so maybe you know that that's in a way builds confidence eases some tension but some of the combination plays they were just playing keep away beautifully in the middle of the field and kind of just allowing the flow of the game to find the pockets of the space where they could make it make make forward progress and i thought that was just it was honestly it was very beautiful soccer and they were consistently fine using that utilizing that just you know kind of free flowing one two touch very quickly moving the ball they just moved up the sidelines pretty easily like over and over again unless they're you know to their i mean to to understand they put ourselves in their shoes they were very frustrated and being kind of aggressive to pursue the ball back and sometimes that leaves you more vulnerable uh it does, it does more harm than than good but i think to their credit they were playing really nice they were playing very pretty soccer um which was really cool oh yeah totally agree i i, I didn't mean to like be knocking their the, oh no the kind of game that they're playing i just feel like yeah, you're, you're not going to see someone from Fulham get bought in the summer for like $40 million. And that's the thing. I, I was surprised to see it. That was the thing. That's not an easy thing to accomplish, playing that kind of soccer. It's, not, it's pretty, yeah, but it's not just pretty. Like, it's difficult. Like, you have to have players that are at least at least cohesive as a group and moving, you know, to help each other. That's not easy to do. So I was impressed. I was impressed. Um, moving on to our last game before the break, listener, West Ham 2, Aston Villa 1. Right out the gate, uh, West Ham score a goal. Um, Ogbonna scores in the third minute on a header from a corner. J.D. Carragher broke, broke this down in Sky Sports, and I thought he did a really good job oh. talking about the blend of zonal and man marking. And he pointed out that they're trying to, to zonal mark in the back. Aston Villa is trying to zonal mark in front of goal and man mark up at the top. And Trezeguet just completely loses Ogbonna up at the top. So then he's kind of got a one-on-one against Target, who's like six inches, seven inches shorter than him. It's a great header from Obana, West Ham, really hot out the gate. And then it's kind of all Aston Villa for like most of the rest of the game. Um, Villa is doing a really nice job 
building out of the back. They they keep feeding Tyrone Mings, and Mings hits these like amazing balls on the ground to break through the lines and is able to like hit players in the middle quite a bit. Um, and then Jack Grealish scores in the 25th minute to level the game at one to one. Matty Cash gets the ball off of a throw in, hits it one time to Grealish in the middle. Thomas Suchek, the West Ham def- uh, defensive midfielder, is just like way out of position. He's way too far up. Grealish has a lot of space, runs through three defenders, smashes it home. Jack Grealish is a walking highlight reel. That dude is so electric to watch, so much fun. And not only so much fun in like the way that he attacks, but he also defends really hard. He just like plays the game the way that you want a player to play the game, I feel like. Um, I think West Ham, for basically the entire first half, like they, they have it doesn't look like they have any idea what they're doing. Masuaku is on the left, and he looks like he has never played soccer before in his life. They look like they're trying to hit Mikel Antonio. And Mikel Antonio, I, I'm pretty sure he's still hurt because there were a couple of balls that were hit free to him, and he just, like didn't look like he was running full tilt and I, he's had some hamstring issues. So I think that could be part of it. But then at the half, uh, David Moyes does a really nice job making some changes and those changes instantly make a difference. He takes out Masuako and he brings on Ben Rama, who uh, used to be teammates with Ollie Watkins, um, who features prominently later in this game. And he also takes off Antonio and puts on Holler and Ben Rama makes an instantaneous impact right as the like right after the half. They get this counterattack. He pings this little ball into the box, um, and it's smashed home. Um, I can't I can't remember who scores for. Uh, oh, Jared Bowen is the one who's on the end of that header, and so now Aston Villa uh, or West Ham is up two to one. And then again, it's like all West Ham for the rest of the game. West Ham, or it's all Aston Villa for the rest of the game. Aston Villa is just attacking throughout. Trezeguet missed an absolute sitter set up by Ollie Watkins in the 62nd minute. And then Trezeguet goes down. A penalty is called on Declan Rice for pulling Trezeguet's shirt. This, of all of the ones we've talked about before, this is the most egregiously soft penalty in the bunch. He barely gets his shirt tugged, throws his hands like, you know, sniper in the trees, and he's been shot. Um... <laughs> It's a nothing penalty, but there is some justice for West Ham because Ollie Watkins steps up and he hits the bar. He misses the penalty. He's now three for seven in his penalties um, and his three out of his last seven penalties he's converted. I have no idea why a player with that poor conversion rate is taking your penalties. No idea. <laughs> but he kind of it, it seems like he's going to make up for it. He scores a really nice ball um, on a he scores a really nice goal on a ball in from target in the 91st minute VAR reviews it and finds him offsides another like barely offsides it's his it's his like shoulder that's offsides too which makes even less sense to me yeah 100% um, this game honestly it was so wild because West Ham had two shots on goal all game and they had two goals so 100% conversion rate for them <laughs> But they didn't do, like, literally anything at any other time in the game. They scored at kickoff, and they scored at kickoff after the half to start the second half, and that's literally it. Aston Villa, I feel like they played really nice, but this is now four defeats and five for them, so they're definitely slipping from their really dominant form at the start of the year, some some concerns. And no Ross Barkley. It's, like, weird to say, but Ross Barkley, I think, is kind of a huge player for them, and he wasn't there. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think Ross Barkley is a huge player because he takes pressure off of Grealish, I think. Uh, he, yeah. he, he's a threat in himself and also can be a great part of the buildup so that Grealish, I think, has a little bit less on his plate. Um, and this idea of just scoring right after kickoffs, I'm like, dude, we should just have – we should just consider – we should consider kickoffs for what they are. They're set pieces, bro. Everyone should have a kickoff <laughs> set piece play in hand. You just score on each one and then just leave the rest, dude. I think it's I think it's the that's the future. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, listener, on that note, I think we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll come back for game of the week. Okay, welcome back. We are going to be talking our game of the week, Manchester United versus Southampton. Um, Rodrigo, I'm going to kick it to you to kind of walk us through what happened in this game. Absolutely. Uh, This was a really good game. Very exciting to watch. If you haven't seen it, um, you know, spoiler alert, I'm about to tell you everything that happened, Uh, but you should go watch it. It was a really exciting game to watch. Um, so the final score here is Southampton to Manchester United three. Um, before we jump into the into to the to the chronological breakdown, um, we should just take a moment to look at the way that these two teams line up. Um, so Southampton comes out with their classic four four two. Theo Walcott is still starting up top um, because Danny Yanks is out with an injury. Uh, but Manchester United comes out with like what I think is one of the more interesting setups that they've had so far. So they're playing four in the back with uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka on the right and Alex Tellis on the left. In the middle, they're playing a four, um, but they're playing what seems to be like a diamond. Um, and the diamond, you know, I guess it's a little fluid, but the way I see it is Bruno Fernandes at the top of the diamond with uh, Matic at the bottom, so the top and the bottom of the diamond, with Donny van de Beek on the left and Fred on the right. That's how I saw it play out most of the time. So they have that four as a diamond, and they start with Marcus Rashford and Mason Greenwood as two up top. So they're playing a 4-4-2, but they're playing with a diamond. And if you heard last week's episode, uh, then you'll know that when you play a diamond in the middle of the field, generally what that tends to mean is you're going to leave some open space in the wide areas, those wide lanes. Which obviously can be dangerous because, uh, you know, that's a lot of free space for buildup um, that sometimes can get around those four and then get straight to the center. So that was something I was curious to see how that would play out for them. Um, also, if you didn't notice, Donnie Vandebeek starts this game. And I believe he plays all 90 minutes, which was yeah, very exciting. He did. First start for him. First start for him. Very exciting. Um, so first half... Uh, I would say beginning of the first half, rather, Manchester United is coming out and they're playing a a press, a pretty heavy press. Like every time Southampton has the ball and they're trying to build up, there's like three or four players around that guy. They're not playing a press that's man marking, right? They're not each grabbing a guy and making sure you can't pass to him. They're playing much more of like a zonal, like we're going to press you and leave no angles for you to pass the ball. Um, and they're pretty aggressive about this. And that diamond that I was talking about does a pretty good job of just kind of collapsing to whatever side. So if the ball's coming down the right, the whole diamond kind of pivots and shifts and just, boom, gets slotted into that space, um, right? Rather than when you play a flat four where you're kind of like a chain and one goes up and everybody slides, the whole diamond in this case is kind of crushing both sides. And so for the first few minutes, Southampton actually looks a little bit stifled uh, by that press. Um, and... 
And, you know, it looks like this is going to be kind of an exciting game, and it is. Um, now, in the six minutes into the game, Mason Greenwood misses a sitter. Uh, he makes this great run from the right side, um, and then he, there's a, a, a – I'm trying to remember exactly how it happens. So the right – oh, so there's this beautiful run he makes from the right side, kind of across the back line, and there's a ball that's passed through to him. Vestergaard kind of looks over his shoulder, I think maybe for the keeper, but doesn't realize that Mason Greenwood is coming around on his left. And by the time he looks back, it's too late. Greenwood's already like a step ahead of where he should be. Greenwood gets the ball. Keeper has come out in the meantime. Greenwood pushes, you know, kind of pushes the ball forward. And essentially it's just him and the goal with a little bit of a tight angle from the left side. Um, and he, he, he takes a shot, and to Vestergaard's uh, credit, he makes a very nice slide that actually ends up blocking a good amount of that goal. But Greenwood actually doesn't even hit the hit, hit Vestergaard. He misses left and hits the side of the net. To me, that, that should have been goal number one right off the bat. I mean, that, that's like a very clear, open chance. Uh, but unfortunately, Greenwood can't, can't quite finish it. Um, 15 minutes into the game, Bruno Fernandez, who's playing at the top of that diamond, Gets a ball outside of the 18, and he whips it with like a knuckle, like a, kind of like this knuckling shot off to the left. And it's kind of hard to read, especially as you're watching the game from the side. It looks like it's going in, but he ends up missing it wide. But it was a beautiful shot. I mean, it would have been a very, very nice goal. It would have been beautiful, but unfortunately can't quite get it off. So you've had a few chances here. Been looks like some clear opportunities for Manchester United. Um, but as this game is, is starting to heat up, Southampton is definitely finding their rhythm. What they're starting to do is when that diamond collapses to one side of the field or not, they're just switching the ball pretty quickly to the other side. And soon you start to see a lot of traffic in those outside lanes, kind of what you would expect when you're playing against somebody with a diamond. Gineppo is playing on the left-hand side as their midfielder. He has an amazing game. That dude is cutting it up, taking people on one-on-one in the box. Uh, It's really kind of amazing. But first goal for Southampton comes from none other than another wonder ball from James Ward-Prowse. This guy from set pieces is absolutely electric right now. Like, I don't know what the, what, the, what the lines are right now on him scoring for set pieces, but you should be putting down very serious money that every time he has the ball in a set piece, he's either going to assist or score himself. 23 minutes into the game, he has a corner from the left-hand side. Go watch this replay. There are 10 or actually 11, I guess, if you count the goal. There's every single Manchester United player is in the box for this free kick. I'm sorry, for this corner. James Ward-Prowse puts this bending ball to the near post. Jan Bednarek gets up, <laughs> flicks the ball near post, and beats all 10 men. Um, it was kind of this amazing... I mean, it, it seems so unlikely. There were like, like I said, like three or five guys in the box to the to these like twice the numbers, and still they're able to find it into the first post. Kind of an amazing goal. Um, four minutes later, Walker Peters has a shot that's deflected off the inside of Alex Tellis's leg, and just skims past the left post. I mean, he was that one also very looked close. like kind of very very close. So while Manchester United has had some opportunities and definitely looks like the aggressor in the first 5, that's definitely starting to feel more even as the game progresses. Then in the 30th minute, Alex McCarthy, goalkeeper for Southampton, makes a pretty god awful mistake. He's passed a ball back and 
he kind of casually just passes it back into the midfield. I don't know who exactly he was aiming for, but he just sends it directly uh, to Mason Greenwood. <laughs> Mason Greenwood runs with the ball straight to the top of the 18, takes a shot from like essentially the line, which is blocked by McCarthy, but he blocks it down into the right. Uh, Bruno Fernandez runs in afterwards to finish this, and surely the second shot will put it in. But McCarthy's able to get up kind of to his knees and scramble and get another hand, gets a double save, and ends up blocking Amazing. it. Blocking it, and then you know it, it's cleared. I think by by Vestergaard to for a for a for a throw in. I mean, granted, it was his sloppy mistake that that put that whole that whole thing into play. But the saves were phenomenal, Excellent. phenomenal. Uh, I was I was I was astounded. Three minutes later, guess who scores? James Ward Prowse. This guy gets a free kick left side of the eight, left side of the eighteen, probably more like 20, 25 yards out. I would say like twenty five yards out. And this is a pretty slim angle coming from the left-hand side. He goes near post, right-footed with that kind of inward bend. And the ball is hit so perfectly that De Gea even gets a hand to the ball. But that bend is literally sucking it into the side net. And he's not able to keep it out. Kind of crashes into the post. And it's second goal for our boys, uh, for our Saints. Can I ask you a question about that? Yes. Do you think that De Gea should have saved that? I don't know. I, I don't know. Here's my thing. When you bend a ball, there's so many ways to bend a ball, right? You can have a ball that bends kind of – the distribution of its bend is pretty even throughout the flight of the ball. But you can also have ones that seem to bend a little bit more or less at certain points, right, earlier or later. This ball bends like the whole time, but the late bend on it as it's starting to slow down is – pretty ferocious i think he could have saved it but that would have been one of the most difficult saves i think possible because not only is he getting this nice bend but since he's hitting it from the left side and he's going near post he would have had to have almost pulled the ball kind of out i think to really get that um if he had cheated a little bit more to that side then i mean he gets there early Maybe he gets that, but I think it was. I think it was just an amazing free kick. Honestly, that's how I see it. I agree. Could not should seems to be the distinction here. Yeah, but exactly. I agree. It's just a great free kick. It was just an excellent free kick. I mean, I, and I, I mean, and the, to be honest, that free kick, it's pretty clear that James Moore Prowse isn't just hitting bangers and like scoring goals. This dude is hitting precision, right? Like that crossing from the left corner for that goal was perfect he had to thread it you know over these people like three people at near post get it to the one guy standing there uh to get that flick on and this one too also like picture perfect i mean it, it, he's just hitting absolute beautiful shots from, from 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 set pieces so 35 minutes in Stuart armstrong misses a sitter uh it's deflected um from Jeanette on the left hand side it falls to armstrong at the back post he puts his chest up to kind of trap it. It's just him essentially in the goal. And he his touch is just like a little too heavy. And he just pushes it off of the end line. It was it was definitely oh, – I know, I know that that guy replayed that one play probably like a million times that night. I mean it was just that open goal opportunity that you wish you could have gotten back. Um, but first half ends. It's an exciting 2-0 uh, uh, you know, uh, lead for Southampton. Things definitely seem like they like they are definitely 
Like, it seems like Southampton can keep this up. They're still dangerous. They're not just, you know, sitting back and, like, playing more casually. You know, they're, they are still very much in this game. They could be scoring another goal. Um, second half comes, uh, and pretty early on, like the 52nd minute, Rashford has this 1v1 that he shoots directly into the keeper. They send this long ball over the top. He gets on the left-hand side. He brings it into the box. It's 1v1, and it, it, I, you know, it, he, he tries to do the right thing. He tries to put it bottom right-hand side. He's coming from the left. He tries, to put in, he tries to put that finesse button. Didn't hold down B long enough. That's the problem. You know what I mean? Mm. Need a little more power, a little more power to whip that one in. Um, 59th minute, uh, or sorry, uh, yes, 59th minute. Guess who comes back for, for Manchester United? This guy. Ooh. This guy. I, he's not a bad player. But if I have to watch him complain with his little bitter face to another player on his team again, I swear I'm going to tear my eyes out. I, I hate watching that dude react to things and complain. Oh, my God. It just makes me – I just want to just – I just want to uh. – Anyways, Che Adams is moving with the ball on the right sideline, um, and he gets stripped. And there's this very quick buildup on the counter. Cavani ends up getting the ball wide on the right-hand side, kind of just as he's breaking into that 18 space, kind of on the wide right side. He sends this He sends this cross to Bruno Fernandes. He hits it pretty hard, and it's in the air, maybe like knee height. Bruno is actually does a great job. He brings the ball down with one touch, turns, and hits it with the second. I mean, it was very, very good job very to get that under control because it was hit hard, and it needed to be in order to get there uh, safely. Um, but he very clean, strikes it, and there's your goal, 2-1. Now, of course, the game is back on in a big, big way. You know, I mentioned Cavani. Cavani comes in, uh, starts the second half, uh, comes in for Mason Greenwood up top. I think this was an excellent substitution, and it certainly plays out that way uh, for Manchester United. Um, in the 74th minute, Cavani scores, uh, scores after his, just, his previous assist scores. There's a corner in from the left. It pings back out to Fred, who's sitting at the top of the 18. Fred slides the ball, essentially one touch, across to Bruno Fernandes on the right of the 18, who it looks as like maybe he's going to take a shot. He hits the ball. It takes a weird deflection. Cavani, though, has already committed a run to the back post. He sees Bruno's going to take the shot or cross or whatever, and he's already making a run back post to pick up the trash. Just so happens, though, that the deflection brings it into his space, and he just dives forward, gets his head on it, and puts it backside. A beautiful goal. Uh, Poach's finish. Poach's finish. Poach's finish. Poach's finish. Absolutely. I mean, he he read the play beautifully. And I think if you're you know, if you're looking at a player and saying, "Oh, he's got this experience and like he knows how to play," that's the kind of experience that that plays well there. Seeing that opportunity, saying, "There's nobody back post. I'm going to be there to clean up," and then being ready for whatever comes your way. That's the kind of play you want to make if you're if if you're coming in and to, and and you know touting this experience and vision for scoring up top. Now. Game is is cruising to the last to the end here, and in the last ten to fifteen minutes, I think the biggest the biggest thing here that the biggest shift is that Southampton looks like they're tired. They're still trying to put in the same kind of work that they are, still putting in shifts on attack, but you can tell that they elect, like that electricity on the counter isn't quite there. Defensively, too, they look a little bit stretched, um, and that makes sense. They've been playing very very aggressive, um, and, and, you know, as a team this entire game. Um, in the ninety second minute. So, you know, you know, injury time, Cavani gets another goal to put Manchester United up 3-2. Um, there's a free kick from about like 40 yards out, pretty far. And instead of Bruno sending it into the box, he sends it out wide left to Rashford, who's kind of just hanging out on the left-hand sideline. Rashford 
I don't know if this is like a set like set play. It seems like it probably was. He he sends it in as in front of the six essentially. Cavani's making a run there. Nobody was ready for that. He he clearly anticipated and or knew that he was making that run far before any any defender did. And he just kind of again, kind of a semi diving header puts it in near post and scores the second goal. So Cavani with an assist and two goals, really absolutely puts on a performance to to give uh, Manchester United the the win here. Um, some of my biggest takeaways, I've already mentioned some of them. One, James Ward-Prowse is absolutely gold from set pieces. Janepa, who was playing on the left-hand side for Southampton, that guy's a player. That dude could be very effective. Like, that's the kind of guy, honestly, I don't know how old he is or what or what his deal is, but that's a guy I'd pick up. He's he's a good player, and he really does well here, especially when they're playing that diamond in the middle. He is taking full advantage of the space on the sides. Um, and... Don't forget that there were a couple sitters early in this game. If they had put those away, this could have been a route, honestly, for Manchester United. Um, but anyways, uh, it's a very good game. Very exciting to watch. Gineppo is 22. I also thought he was excellent in this game. He had five dribbles completed, the most of anyone on the pitch. When he gets the ball at his feet, he does some awesome stuff. His final pass doesn't seem like it's quite there, it, and it seems like sometimes his position is a little bit off, but that, to me, feels like a product of being a young player. Um, another game where I think, like you said, some sitters missed. If if Danny Ings is here, does Manchester United win this game? I think probably not. I think he, he probably is at, at the end of, of some of those chances for Southampton. Um, I... Uh, on the other side of the ball, I think in thinking about uh, Manchester United, uh, I had a player who I wanted to highlight and talk maybe a little bit about Ole's tactics. I want to talk about Fred. I have not been a huge believer in him, but I thought he was exceptional in this game. He gave away the the, the foul that James Ward-Prowse ended up scoring. It was kind of a, a silly foul by him, like right at the top of the 18. He didn't really need to do that. Roy Keane went on this huge tirade yesterday ripping about lazy uh fred um roy Keane, just kind of an idiot so take that for whatever it is but fred in this game he's involved in two of the goals he's the one who wins the ball off of shea adams twice to set up that goal that goes to bruno he's the one who plays in the ball to bruno like you mentioned that sets up cavani he is just hounding the midfield of southampton and his stats in this game are kind of ridiculous he had uh 98 uh sorry 90 96 percent pass accuracy um on the most completed passes he's had this season for uh manchester united he also had four blocks one intercept one interception two successful tackles and he had 35 presses throughout this game which is like a way of measuring um how many times a player is like playing within i think it's usually considered a six foot uh, range of uh, of a player who has the ball and that's the thing with him is he's like doing a lot that isn't necessarily putting him on the score sheet or getting him assists but he's cleaning it up I thought Nemanja Matic and low-key Donny van de Beek after the first like 25 minutes I don't think either one of them played particularly well and I think Fred was really anchoring that midfield for United and linking up with Bruno and he was great I think tactically United should play the diamond this is what they played against PSG. They seed possession a little bit more when they play like this, but it's really successful for them when they do that. And we've talked about that a lot. Um, but I think 
that this is probably the optimal setup for them is to have that diamond midfield. Maybe this is not the the optimal personnel. I think when you have Anthony Martial back, it kind of poses a little bit of a problem in terms of how many attacking players you want to have up in front of your midfield. But honestly, it wasn't like Rashford and Greenwood didn't have chances. They had a lot of chances in the first half. They just couldn't really put them away. So I thought Ole set them up really well. And then I thought in the second half, like the switch for Cavani early, I thought was smart. Um, And I thought also in the second half, they pulled back on the press a little bit. And they let Southampton run in and run at them a little bit more, which I think, you know, maybe that contributes to Southampton being more tired in the last 15. So I thought he did, you know, we we criticize him a lot, but you got to give credit. Beating Southampton like this, coming from behind two goals down, that's an impressive win, and and that to me feels like he's getting his guys to really play for the badge and and making some good tactical decisions to to get them the three points. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll say this: it's clear there was a clear decision made to play this way because this is not necessarily the same lineup or the same uh, approach, right? Formation that we've seen. So it was clear that this was this was deliberate, and it was definitely effective. Um, I think that what I like about I know that I know that both Don, I don't think Donnie Van de Beek played his best game either, but I actually think that in terms of getting him into the side, that playing him kind of in this parallel role to Fred is actually a great idea. Danny Van de Beek is kind of a he, he's a very aggressive workhorse like player. He, he's aggressive on defense. He's 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 a, he's kind of always trying to get involved and around. That's I think I think he brings a slightly different edge to it than Fred does, but I think they can actually play kind of a similar role. And if they get more used to kind of what that looks like, they could they could be they could be very very effective in those kind of sides of the diamond where there's going to be times you need to be able to stretch and be aggressive or take chances to like stop a play coming down the sides because you're playing a little bit more tight. And at the same time, you know I think Donny Van might offer a little bit more in terms of creation of you know, opportunities with some of his passing than, than maybe Fred does. Like, Fred makes a lot of his passes in this game, um, but he makes very smart decisions like, I'm going to give this to Bruno, <laughs> and right, Bruno's right. going to go do something with it, which I think is great. I mean, that's, that's I think that's, that's the, you know, that's the role he's, he's been put to play. One thing, too, is that if you do play this 4-4-2 with a diamond in the middle, it's actually kind of an easy transition to make from that to 4-3-3, mm-hmm. because you take the top of the diamond and you kind of just push that up a little farther yeah and then you push those two forwards wide and i think in this game anyways you see rashford and greenwood both trying to get kind of the wide spaces they're not playing the two up front like the way that southampton does where they play tighter and they play a little bit more of like off of each other greenwood and 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 rashford kind of end up spreading out wide anyways and so if you take the tip of that diamond and put in a third forward you can keep that same underlying premise of like a holding mid with two side get workhorses and I think it could be kind of an interesting way to transition between two different you know formations while maintaining some continuity in like the style of play. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely think this was a better look for them. Um, and I also want to give them credit. It wasn't perfect, but their press was pretty good. Their good. press was pretty darn yeah. solid. Um, in the beginning of this game, I kind of thought that's the way the game would work. Whoever won the pressing game would win the game. Um, it kind of didn't end up being quite as contentious around that press because things changed. Um, but they did a good job of that. And if they got that down really well, I mean, that would be a huge, huge tool in their arsenal. Um, yeah. 
Don't say Arsenal. That triggers me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I will, I, I will. My, my last quick stat um, before we take a break, listener, and piece of Fred propaganda here. United have won 82% of their games when Fred is a starter. Oh, I boy. don't have another. Like, I don't have the numbers on other players for that. But I would be curious to see if there's anyone else in the league who has like such a high rate for the games, the number with the number of the games that he's played because he's played a good amount. So, yeah, um, impressive. But listener, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to try to do a little bit better <laughs> at predicting the games for match week eleven. But we'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. We are going to wrap up, listener, with some predictions. I went 0-3, I think, for my calls from last week, so I'll try to do a little bit better. I tried to go the hot takes route, you know, shoot your shot, aim high, um, but I, I'm, I think I'm going to go maybe a little bit safer this time. So I'm going to kick it off with what I think will be the upset of the weekend, and I'm going with, like, you could barely call this an upset, but I think West Brom is going to beat Crystal Palace. Um, I like the way that West Brom sets up defensively. I don't really see the way that Crystal Palace scores a goal. I, I don't really see them having a credible attacking threat going forward. It's unclear if Zaha is going to play in this game. Even if he does, I still think West Brom can steal at least a point, but I think that they could go for all three. What are you feeling for an upset, Rodrigo? Upset. Uh, so... I think I'm going the hot take route, although I don't think any route has served me so well on these predictions yet. But my hot take here, upset, Sheffield United is going to beat Leicester City. Let's go. I love it. I, I love think, it. I think a sneaky could happen, and Sheffield's got nothing to lose because uh, they're already just, like, sucking. And this last game, dude, I'm telling you, they were creating some – it's going to happen. If they play Oliver Burke up top, I'm, I, I would double down. On, on that bet. Uh, but let's, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, I can tell you, I've been burned by the fire of believing in my team before. And <laughs> it burns real hot, my friend. It burns real hot. Um, okay, I think then we should maybe move on to what we're seeing as a guaranteed three points. Guaranteed. Mm. I think it's a get right week for Everton. And I think that they just send Burnley to the shadow realm. Like, I thought Everton actually played really well against Leeds. I think Pickford is kind of finding his form, and Burnley stinks. Burnley, there. That's a bad. That's a bad team. So Dude, I think. Yeah. I, I I think Everton like they'll they'll come out real hot. Calvert Lewin get at least a goal. Um, yeah. I, there's I like there's no call. way they lose that game. I I like that call. I agree a hundred percent. Burnley looks miserable, and they haven't really looked in form ever. Uh, this this season, so I, I think I think that that's pretty ripe. Um, guaranteed, guaranteed three points. I mean, it, it it's pretty obvious to me that that's got to be Manchester City Fulham. Uh, I don't think Fulham has much of a chance there. Um, Manchester City, you know what they did to Burnley. I think they're pretty much going to do to Fulham. Um, just one to one. I don't think they can stand the heat and. Manchester City is going to just clobber the shit out of them. So that's that's my pick there. I think sad, but probably true. Um, game of the week. We, we have a lot of really even matchups this weekend. I think other than those two, basically everything else to me feels like 
you know, it's going to be maybe it's do- it's hopefully com- competitive. Winnable, if you will. Um, I'm not going to pick Tottenham Arsenal because uh, I, I can't bring myself to doing that. I'm actually the most excited to watch Chelsea Leeds. I think that Chelsea played has played pretty conservatively a few of their games in this season, and you kind of can't play that conservatively against Leeds. Like, I think at some point you do kind of have to hit them on the counter. You do have to kind of go for it because they're going to score goals. Um, so I, I'm really excited to see how that one goes. I, I've been getting more into Frank as a tactician, and going up against Leeds and Bielzo will be a really great test for that Chelsea side. So I'm, I'm really excited about that game. I think that's a great call. I think Chelsea Leeds will be a fire game. Um, I, I I could see a lot of fireworks going off in that game. It could be very exciting. Um, I think for my game of the week, uh, it's a little bit of a toss up. I think I think I'm most excited to see aside from the Chelsea Leeds game. I think I'm most excited to see Liverpool Wolves. Um, Triori had a great game this 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 week for Wolves. Excellent. Excellent. And I think that they might be starting to hit their rhythm, or at least what looks like their old rhythm. I know, um, you know, they'll be they'll be missing uh, Raul, Raul Jimenez, Jimenez. Yeah. which is really unfortunate. Um, but you know, Liverpool has their own injuries as well. So I mean, I think this could be I think this could be a really interesting showdown. I, I don't really know what to expect, um, but my hope is that Monty will find his feet and score another goal, so that my fantasy team doesn't have to rely solely on Edison Cavani, like circuses to get through the week um <laughs> so anyways that's gonna be an exciting game honorable mention to also just a game to watch out for Aston Villa Newcastle Callum Wilson looked really good this week Aston Villa is spice we know that um that could actually be a pretty firework game as well so agreed I like I like both of those picks a lot mm-hmm. well uh listener be prepared for next week uh you're either gonna get me an abject misery and despair or ultimate ecstasy and joy so <laughs> There's no middle ground here, um, and yeah, hoping that it's gonna be it's gonna be joy. But Rodrigo, as always, it's so great to talk to you, um, and listener, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Yeah, thank you, Duffy, and uh, you know what? No matter what happens uh, on what's see on Sunday at eleven thirty, uh, we we can always we can always rely on uh west ham to put up an absolute an absolute excellent game and crush manchester united so it will, hopefully we can we can talk about that instead yeah.